0: Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with Journal Ghoul, James Heathers from Cypher Skin. (laughs) We might might return to that one later. Um, But a very special guest... Michelle Avassar Whiting, who is the editor in chief of the Research Square preprint preprint platform. Michelle has been working. Say that the three times. Say that again. Say <laughs> it again. Say it <laughs> again. <laughs> mate, mate, there's going to be plenty of times for me to get that wrong in the rest of the episode. <laughs> Michelle has been working in the manuscript services and science communication space for the better part of 10 years. And before that, she studied epigenetic alterations in cancer at Brown University. Michelle, thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, Michelle, most preprint servers have some form of moderation either before the preprint is posted, like BioArchive, or some sort of post moderation, like SciArchive. But these editorial processes are not traditionally done by editors, as these servers don't have any. Can you start by telling us about your role as an editor for the Research Square preprint platform?
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, usually, there's not an editor at a research at a preprint platform. We're probably unique in the sense, I don't know that any other preprint server has a role called editor-in-chief, but functionally there is somebody who is doing something similar to what I'm doing, which is essentially the, I'm where the buck stops for papers that are coming into our platform. Um, So we do essentially the same kind of um, screening process that Bioarchive and MedArchive have described our multidisciplinary preprint platform. So we get in life sciences stuff, uh, actually, pretty much anything, but most of it is life sciences and medical sciences. And with the medical stuff, we have to be particularly careful and um, judicious about what we allow onto the platform. So we're looking for things like ethics, uh, you know, appropriate ethics approval. that the thing is broadly scientific, um, not pseudoscience, not uh, total nonsense, um, that it adheres to some basic norms of, you know, uh, manuscripts and leaving anything out. Um, oh, and I guess importantly for probably what's going to be the context of most of our conversation here, that it's not too uh, contentious or alarming, um, especially if that's paired with questionable uh methods um which we don't generally scrutinize but you know sometimes we do have to take those things into account if we're about to release something totally radioactive um into the public sphere
0: now what sort of percentage of the submissions to the server would you reject for being pseudoscience i always always Mm. wonder about this is this like a small number is it quite a lot of stuff that you get
1: pseudoscience in particular um Not much, Uh, but let me back up and just explain how we get most of our submissions because it's different to how Bioarchive or many of the other servers, um, nonprofit servers, get their submissions. We have a partnership with Springer Nature uh, that brings in most of the submissions that we get to our platform. So uh, in in the course of submitting a paper to one of something like 500 journals now on the Springer Nature portfolio, a person has the option of opting in to a preprint. It's considered at that point a service because we just take the data and bring it into our platform and post it as a preprint if that's what they want. Um, so those papers have already gone through some kind of process, uh, some kind of QC process, a tech check, uh, something like that. They've had eyes on them in most cases. And so m- much of what we would consider you know, really egregious Um pseudoscience or something like that would have been screened screened out at that point. Of the papers that we get in directly, so we also have a direct submission route that's analogous to what Bioarchive, and meta-archive do, um, we reject 30%. Um, But most of that is not pseudoscience. It's uh, it's not in scope. It's like opinion pieces or weird theory things. Um, Some of it is pseudoscience and some of it is just crazy talk um, that we just don't post.
2: <laughs> well, you're definitely in the wrong place here then, pal. Crazy, crazy talk is all we bring to the table.
1: Crazier than this, trust um, me. D- d-
2: <laughs> Good. Or,
1: or alarming, um, you know, during the pandemic, there's been uh, a lot of, we've, we've had a lot of moments of just having to think, what is the urgency that this makes it uh, to to People's eyeballs um, and weigh that against the possible, you know, panic that might set in when people see it or, um, you know. uh, Okay, I can give you a really really good example of a a preprint that we've rejected. Early in the pandemic, we got a preprint uh, talking about the use of rectal insufflation to treat COVID-19 uh, pneumonia, like severe pneumonia from COVID-19, hypoxia, right? Mm. Lack of oxygen. Um, so it's rectal insufflation with ozone to treat hypoxia from
2: severe COVID <laughs> <Wow>. pneumonia.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, We're reporting Darnold's so like- proposal.
2: Ozone. This is with ozone, what, what's ozone, literally because chemically it's got more oxygens and the airway is blocked. Yeah. So you just pick something with more oxygen and a different way in. and someone thought that was a good idea oh wow I mean what's left after that like liquid oxygen and the ear is all I can think of that is okay right
1: yeah but this Um, is not so this is not apparently this is not an unheard of thing you know like this is I had to do a little research to decide whether this is something I should post or not uh so I did and there's not a lot this is apparently like kind of an, an old technique, old school <laughs> uh technique for reoxygenating people. <laughs> and um and yeah, okay. So I had to decide uh do I post this because maybe it's a maybe it's a reasonable way for people to give quick oxygen to people. Uh but in the flip side of that, I also noticed that not only can you buy a DIY kit on eBay for ozone rectal and vaginal insufflation, but you can find DIY videos on YouTube on specifically how to do it, how to self-administer this treatment. Uh, And so that's when I decided not to post (laughs) the preprint because, yeah, I mean, I, I just... Uh, there's the possibility that somebody decides to uh, do this and blows up their rectum. And then it, I don't want to be on the, on the opposite end of that thread when and if it happens. So wow. there's an example for you.
0: So that, that's it's one of my an, favorites. Th- that, that's an example of you seeing a preprint and going, no, this is the, this, the, the risks outweigh the benefits. Has there been situations in which a preprint has been posted and then information comes to light? Um, and then you've actually decided to okay, we need to withdraw this. Has, has, has that as it happens sort of during these COVID times, or for anything else?
1: Um, I'm not going to get into the ivermectin thing yet because I assume we're going to talk about it. <laughs> it's been I've gotten a lot of attention um, for that story, and we can talk about it separately. But just before we deal with that, there there hasn't been another example, not one that we've actually withdrawn. Um, There is an interesting situation, uh, and it's actually tied to something that our previous president was saying on the podium about um, injecting disinfectant. You remember this. Um, And I I woke up that morning with the sudden realization that he may be, in part, referring to a preprint on our platform.
2: No, Um, really? Yeah. Uh, I thought he was just spitballing.
1: No, there's, there's... it's a really crude interpretation of, of this preprint on, I think it's called methylene blue, uh, it's really removing the plasma and then disinfecting the plasma and reinjecting it. It's kind of very like inventive um, way of <laughs> clearing a virus, uh, but it was a real paper and it really got published, um, but it was retracted not long ago for... Reasons I don't fully understand, but some of the data was wrong. Anyway, it was retracted, and now we have this problem of well, now we have the preprint still up, uh, and what what do you do when the the downstream publication ends up getting retracted? Right, I mean that's that's something that I don't think we've even really grappled with, um, like in terms of the preprint platforms. They're relative, you know, it's only pretty new to be posting these kinds of medical studies, and those are the ones who get retracted often. Uh, and so what do you do with the preprint at that point? So we ended up putting up an editorial note so that it's clear that the downstream publication to which this is linked has now been retracted. And so uh, you should have that context when you're looking at the preprint too. But anyway, that, that was, that's one yeah, example, but there haven't but been that, many.
2: That, that, feels, that feels like plenty because, I mean, the vast majority of the time, um, retracted papers don't disappear completely. They're, a lot of the time they're left in situ with a note that says, for the love of God, please read this note. So it's simply an analog of that. Um, I don't feel like there's any sort of broader obligation to memory hole it because it's been um, uh, because it's been published and then retracted elsewhere. It just I mean, gets it, the same there's the of steps. the
1: additional step of withdrawing it on a preprint platform, which is withdrawal hmm. is sort of the analog to retraction. Um, but it's kind of yeah. I, I don't know what that really accomplishes beyond. Um, Yeah, just notifying people. My responsibility is just to let people know something's gone wrong. You should be aware of this when you're looking at this paper, but certainly not take it down.
2: Oh, yeah, for for sure. Look, I would prefer that everything that was ever retracted or uh, allegedly withdrawn, unless it was like actively dangerous, um, uh, because we, we, we like those. I, I, I like things that are completely bogus, and you get the ability to look through it. You might be able to okay. test something on it. You might be able to use it. It becomes—I mean—it's a very different kind of resource, but it's still a resource. Um, there have been cases in the past where, um, especially I was trying to improve on. Uh, there's an anesthesiologist called Carlisle. Um, and he used what's called the Stufa-Fisher test on the sort of table ones from this anesthesiologist who was just making data up left, right, and center, running eight fictitious RCTs a year. Um, he was, <laughs> was a very naughty boy. Um, the only reason that I made any progress on that at all, I never got it finished. Uh, I, stopped, I stopped sciencing too soon. Um, the only reason I ever made any progress is because a lot of medical journals leave the retracted thing in context. And you see the big red sign. like okay so i know this table one was made up super useful right now uh i need that but um the problem, I mean, pe- pe- people get continually complain about, oh, it's retracted, but it's still cited. And you go, okay, well, that's a citing behavior. It's not the fact that it exists. And to be quite honest, if you've removed all reference from it from the internet, people would just copy. Uh, people who haven't read the bastard thing would be copying the, the, the reference from a paper where they read it in context. And they're just using that. And it would continue to exist without it even existing. Um,
1: right. <laughs> which is well, you like, uh, know, there are groups that are working on this, sketch. that, you know. You guys uh, promote cite.ai, and that's one of their their projects is to cut down on the citation of retracted research. Uh, mm. This is something that Crossmark's meant to be helping with. Crossmark doesn't have functionality in preprints yet, but we're working on it so that there will be some actual metadata-based meaning to withdrawing a preprint that will feed back uh, to, the, to the wider world when somebody tries to cite it there'll be, Mm. you know, it'll be obvious that something has gone on with that, that preprint, which is just as important as, you know, that notification on a journal
2: uh, article. So. So I I, want to, I want to ask a more, uh, a more complicated question about the sort of social role of, of all of this. Um, I, I have a, four, four and a half thousand word draft on something that I've never published because generally when I get angry with something and then write a whole bunch, I usually end up leaving it alone and losing interest in it because that's not a mature emotion that sustains actually getting the bastard thing finished. Um, and it was about this sort of people who were doomsaying the, the role of preprints in 2017, 2018. And it was entirely at the time through the lens of If this research isn't peer-reviewed, and uh, people familiar with this podcast will know my opinion on that as a mark of quality in a lot of cases. Um, If it isn't peer-reviewed and it ends up in the medias, if it ends up in the medias, we could end up having the fake news. And 4,000 words on how I think that's total bullshit feels a little bit sort of passe now. The kind of preprint to hype pipeline is so amazingly well developed over the last 18 months. Um, I do not, I, I'm now in the position where like, I don't have an answer about the kind of responsibility f- for like between the platform, the authors, the people who promote it. And then the news organizations who end up writing about the fuss. So it used, it, used to, it used to go preprint, um, someone who doesn't know what a fucking preprint is writes an article on it, you know, on Fox affiliate KWQZ, like from Tallahassee bullshit, you know, home of the Cross-Eyed Gators. Someone writes that and then all the people see it. Now it's the other way around preprint comes out, it's on something that is is part of the topic de jour of all the frothing loonies on the internet, they read it, and then people write an article going, oh, look at all these frothing loonies. It used to be something that just Huffington Post did, where there's like, 20 people have tweeted an angry thing. That's good enough for an article, which was obviously always bullshit. But now, now this is inside out. Um, the only people who come out of it looking good, in my opinion, and I don't want a soapbox here, is you all because honestly, if you can't pre-print it, someone will blog that shit, <laughs> and then that will be and that will be given the same credence just because it has the same kind of trappings as a journal thingy in the first place. Um, I don't
1: know if it'll be given the same credence um, by loonies, perhaps by loonies. <laughs> um, but there is something to be said, and it worries. I mean, it's on my mind. That, you know, we are, we are now, you know, we're in the path of publication for the nature portfolio, for example. So those, those, a lot of those people who are submitting to those journals will end up with a preprint on our platform, um, and lots of other great papers. And so putting anything beside those papers just gives it some kind of polish or some kind of credibility that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't exist if, you know, on some randos blog. Um, so I take that seriously because I know that most people do have an appreciation for what a, you know, ostensibly like valid research science platform, you know, looks like versus rando number one's blog. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, so it, that, that weighs on me when I think about what to post and what not to post. I also, now that I've lived through 19 months of this shit, I now see exactly
2: <laughs> where yeah.
1: these things go. Like, I started out probably a lot more optimistic, uh, about how I expect scientists to treat preprints, how I expect journalists to treat them. How I mm-hmm. expect randos on Twitter to treat them as well, and I, you know, it's like a, my faith in humanity has been just degraded time and time again to the point where now, you know, unfortunately, I won't post the sorts of things I would have post posted earlier in the pandemic because I you know, because I'm scared too, and and it doesn't it? There's probably decent research that we've rejected or we've we've neglected to post because of that this is probably an area where i've used a little bit more of a heavy hand than than maybe some of the other platforms have like i'm watching Mm. we have a we have a slack channel that just pulls in every mention of our platform which is a lot of work to like weed through all of that but i'm sure i'm watching for certain trends right like these troll storms that tend to happen around certain preprints even when i didn't expect them i'll give you an an example in a minute um and, and see if there's something that we can do on our end, because I mean, we have, we're a company of like, you know, uh, I don't know how many, 200 or something PhDs, um, in, in all different disciplines. We have a lot of expertise to go around and a lot of areas where we can interject and play the kind of more editorial role of saying, look, uh, you know, submit the lay summary for people's consideration so that they can see, uh, what this means and what this doesn't mean and get themselves back into their into their boxes. And this sometimes works um, when when we've done it. And so uh, okay, one example of the, of something going totally off the rails, again, pretty early in, I think it was June 2020, there was a preprint submitted to our platform, about a very nice paper about T cell uh, T cell immunity that we've acquired from previous exposures to coronavirus you know coronaviruses that cause the common cold and things like that. So we have some of this immunity and the paper was all about how we can leverage this. Uh, you know, it, When we think about treatments and vaccines and that sort of thing. Uh, and it says that you know, there's 81% of, of, of people that they sampled have this sort of immunity built in now. So what people did with this is decided that 81% of us are immune to SARS-CoV-2, are immune to COVID-19. And therefore, you know this is this is proof that everything has been blown completely out of proportion. Uh, here's the real science, and look, it's on this platform, and blah 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 blah. People went. This is still the the single most heavily trafficked preprint on our platform. Uh, a couple of months later, it was published almost unchanged in Nature Immunology. And then when you watch their alt metric and their you know trends on social media it's the same thing recapitulated. It's the same trolls, you know, going in and uh, uh, grandstanding about what they think they understand about this study, which is just so off-base, like it's nowhere near the truth. So what we did is we saw that this was happening and we issued an editorial note, which is really just... a lay summary like as close to as close as we could get to a lay summary with immunology which is really fucking hard to do i if you try <laughs> immunology is, is awful and complicated and I, I don't understand it at all but there was a, another woman in my department who who did and so she had, she did a pretty good job of of explaining this and explaining away some of the the misconstruals that people ran away with on
2: it, right? And so, so just just to jump in really quickly, just a, yeah, just one yeah, question. So, why is your developed sense of social responsibility better than nature immunologies?
1: Um, I can't answer that. I mean, I, I don't, know is- I
2: didn't. I didn't. I just <laughs> wanted to see the look on your face when I asked the question. I'm sorry, that was a total <laughs> troll on my part.
1: Panic. Here's, the,
2: yeah, here's this this is. I it's mean,
1: probably because I have time on. I have a little bit more time yeah. than the average. I'm going to be, you know, um, uh, d- diplomatic and say mm-hmm. that I d- that you know this is my first. I've been doing this job for a year. Uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and so this is my response to things. So just to give people more information. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it totally backfires but I can't just sit and watch that happen. <laughs> like, this is crazy. There's thousands of people repeating the same utter nonsense again and again. Uh, yeah, and, and, and it's right. my platform. So it's like, I feel the sense of, of responsibility to, to interject when this happens. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also, I mean, it's also, it's not a matter of, I mean, we see this in error detection all the time. Like sometimes you're talking about it's a matter of interpretation or the data is unlikely. And other times it's just, Ask backwards inside out wrong full stop end of story there's no correspondence to be entered into and people very often confuse like this this is a debate or this has a very low probability or this is an argument that's in process with this is legitimately and straightforwardly like with an infinitely high probability a, a misinterpretation and we can say something definite about it um And there's no, because obviously, I mean, I'm sure you've met a free speech troll or two when it comes to the sort of the, um, it's a very, very difficult environment to navigate with free speech maximalism, which I would add people only seem to get really keen on when it comes to stuff they like. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's, I mean, this is in, in, in many ways, I have been very shitty publicly and at a certain volume with scientists and journals more than anyone else who's involved in this process in the first place. I mean, we can put the loonies to one side for the reason that this it's that's not an interrogable problem. Like for instance, uh if you, if you if you put up a reprint uh and it becomes the lightning rod for some serious anti-scientific tinfoil bullshit And two weeks later, someone writes to you and says, hey, there's a a specific thing about this that means it's very definitely wrong. And you pull it. The act of pulling it itself, it's like, well, this is just, it's just being suppressed, (laughs) isn't it? And the 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 same thing happens if it disappears from a journal, but also the same thing happens if it disappears from, like, someone's blog or from an unmoderated platform or from anywhere else. There literally is no... There's no opening that box. There's no ability to be able to engage with it responsibly. Um, and in fact, a lot of those people may not even <laughs> a lot of those people may not even be real people from time to time, um, which is which is a whole separate question about which I have no knowledge of the mechanics. But no, the- but it's true
1: the uh, I don't know what proportion mm. were bots retweeting uh, that that T cell paper, but it was some a non-trivial <laughs> proportion retweeting those. So Yeah. That was an interesting discovery too.
2: Yeah, it's um I've 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 seen it um every now and again uh because it, it's 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 funny. When you grump at science on the internet, like in general other people who turn up are scientific scientists themselves or scientifically literate people and they go, oh that's funny or that's interesting or whatever and then they get on with their day. Every now and again when you sort of hit science over the head with a mallet People who think that you're on their side, and I am doing air quotes like someone from the 90s, but you just can't see it on the audio. Um, people who think you're on their side turn up and they're like, you're absolutely right, weird looking guy. Um, yeah, this is and like, I have you not read any other thing that I've said? But you see when those people turn up, the patterns in what's happening and how things are aped and repeated and then copied and pasted between other things to make trends, and it's ve- and it's almost like ninety nine percent of the time when uh, people who are the the tin foils turn up and they suddenly like something that I've done, I don't I can't think of a single time where that's been an organic thing, where people have done it by themselves. It's in general it's sustained by something that is obviously a digital only mechanism,
1: automated. Yeah.
2: Automated yeah. outrage. Yeah, um, I don't know. I feel, I feel I'm so amazed that everyone has the energy left to be upset about everything at this point. But uh, you you could put that to one side when you realize that a lot of them are just like lines of Java. So my. Uh, but
1: to, I've got to
2: get to, a glass of water. I'm angrying myself up here.
1: Um. So. To continue the I guess that this was my train of thought in explaining about that story, because we were talking about people are are definitely have been villainizing preprints as part of the, an important sort of the crux of the misinformation, disinformation landscape. Uh, but what I've just described obviously isn't a problem with preprints, right? It's a problem of good intentions with bad outcomes. We've we've basically moved to a world where science is eminently accessible without augmenting our language, our behaviors, our processes um, to account for layperson's interpretation of the work. I don't, I don't necessarily think, I don't have the answer to this. I just recognize that it's a problem. There was a, someone, was it Robert Harrington or something like that on Scholarly Kitchen talked about this knowledge democratization and how... Shifting to open access sort of, it really only democratizes knowledge for those who have the means to understand the content. Everyone else is still left out. Uh, and then when you couple that with this world transforming emergency, like the one that we're, we're in, uh, and a highly polarized political, uh, climate, then you end up with this sort of crazy balkanization of like the information landscape that we're seeing. I mean, I I think that's a way bigger problem than I have the the ability to, to deal with, but
2: it's not a preprint. It's not a preprint problem, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And something, something I'd add to your pile there. Right. Uh, the hydroxychloroquine silliness, um, all the original silliness around either no one's going to die or everyone's going to die. Um, some of the stuff that ended up being cited in the Great Barrington Declaration, the original terrible research from Standard, um, a whole raft of silliness in Ivermectin, something, something, whatever. Um, the, 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 the terrible paper recently about how masks were going to strangle your child and steal your Ford Focus in particular. All of that journal articles. People forget sometimes that it's way easier to get when you get a really big buy in. This is I continually remind people who who, who are whinging about this, because I think this is a really important point. When they did the original uh, paper by Wakefield. And his dozen or so collaborators that no one ever really talks about, the people who just came along for the ride and then we forgot about them. It was all Andrew's fault. It was like the, the, other, the other dozen people, was, uh, they, they, they weren't. They weren't they, yeah. He's not never, never they, they Yeah. They had, they had an extra big-ass uh, PR event at the Royal Free Hospital in London with cameras and banners and things where they came out and they talked about it and it went on the news and it got its start as a big old news story that was written, put in a proper journal, sent out by a PR agency, approved, and then sent out everywhere else. And we're still doing that now. We're still in the position where like weirdos like me and some of the people who do more work on this than I do now, it was like two weeks later you've writing to an editor going, Hey, do you know, you know, one plus two does not equal Q. Um, that's (laughs) not, that's not a thing. There there is still plenty of imprinter and authority left from the real stuff. And it feels really tacky in a way to get angry at something that's supposed to be a different mechanism when you're still very obviously making mistakes in the mechanism. That people have been complaining about for a fucking century are not, is not working the way that it's supposed to. Um, it's very much a you know the this speck in your eye and the mote in my brother's and the chip on the shoulder and all the other things. If I'd read the fucking Bible properly, I'd know how to quote. Um, and sorry, this is this is I knew I knew this I knew this would happen the moment we looked at the topic list. I was like, don't fucking soapbox, don't do it. And Dan didn't warn me, but I know he was thinking it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Speaking trying not right to. to I like promise. Oh God! I mean, have I said have, 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 have I said anything unreasonable? I promise I'm not going easy on you because we decided to 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 have this conversation in the first place. It just seems so fucking hypocritical a lot of the time. That it, it, yeah, it, it does. A di- it's it's a different mechanism. It is you, you, if you are a Lancet sub right? If you are in nature's sub journal, if you are, um, the Royal society, what's his cock, you're supposed to be able to get this right. The whole idea that something that's an unmoderated platform, well, it's the unmoderated platform. That's the problem. And we are still occasionally getting the really big things wrong and letting that through. And they don't, I promise you, people who are in these contexts, the problem is everyone who's listening to this, they 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 put things that they know. What you see when you monitor that with your internal processes, they see that happening, and they're like, "Okay." So I guess that's getting a lot of interest today. It's not. There's no engagement with it. They still don't think of it as like a modern media object. They still think of it in terms of it's like an entry and a ledger and a library. And every single thing that c- comes after that totally devoid my my responsibility is completely discharged the moment we hit publish i I am having a fight right now that i've been i've been working at my company now for 13 months and i'm still having a fight with a group of editors who published a bunch of fucking bullshit that's directly relevant to a plague related subject that i can't talk about and i'm still fighting with these people now and it's it's like it's outlasted my fucking academic career at this point (laughs) So, I mean, if they could, if they could fix all that, I would be happy for them to uh, offer suggestions for the, the new science media. Okay, no more. Yeah, soap. yeah, I and
1: promise. I, I do. I mean, I think that's this is probably a controversial thing to say. May I ask you to take it out later, but uh, you know, preprints, it's easy come, easy go. I, I didn't have, you know, it's no love lost. If I can see very clearly with my own eyes that something is really messed up. I mean, like if I can see the plagiarism myself, it's been shown to me or, or something worse, uh, then it's, it's, I I don't lose any sleep about, you know, putting up an expression of concern or putting up a note to say, you know, I feel like my responsibility first is to the people that are going to land on this thinking that it's, uh, thinking that no one has brought up any issues with it. And that's why I'm also trying to bring in all of the voices from outside. So all of the third party uh, groups, the pub peers and the pre-reviews and the whoever is doing, whoever is conducting any sort of evaluation on these things. I'm trying to bring them in, you know, eventually find a way, a mechanism by archive has done this now. This is great. Uh, they're not speaking to the validity of the study. You know, we don't do that. We don't endorse it. You know, that's explicitly not part of our purview as a preprint. But we, I think we do have a responsibility to make sure that the voices that are talking about it are displayed on the, pre, on the preprint itself. So, um, so whenever somebody comes to me with a problem, I say, have you posted this as a comment? Right now, we don't have a better mechanism for that. We, we'll get there. But for now put it in the comment, you know, like if it tries to moderate you, let me know, I'll unmoderate you, you know, I want these things to be seen, because this is actually a potentially a much better mechanism, and something that could help these journals, these journals that are probably, you know, in some cases, they're under resourced, in other cases, you know, I don't know, I don't know what happens that that leads to these problems, and then they don't get retracted for years and all that. This could stand to help, right? If it it originated as a preprint, and there's all this Stuff in the comments or coming in through PubPeer or other mechanisms, they would never get published to begin with. Like, suddenly they have a lot more peer reviewers to draw from, which is the whole, you know, that's the whole point of this. Like, that's why we do this to begin with is to suddenly call on an army of people, potential subject matter experts, to speak, to scrutinize and to speak to the validity of the study. That doesn't happen in the vast majority of cases, but it is happening in a lot of the the COVID stuff.
0: If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, $5 to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is our most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. For links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes.
2: You must have had one of the hardest... Play jobs out of anyone we've had as a guest when did you start as uh as chief malone of the research squares
1: it was a year ago it was july 2020 <laughs>
2: july 2020
1: i know don't ask wow. me why we didn't have that. that function even before that so it was kind of like i was in an operations I was operations director before that and right. I kind of, you know, it was like, it wasn't just me, but everyone sort of looked around and was like, I think we need an editorial function here. Like, it's like, we can't, this cannot be done by committee anymore. And like, we, we need, really, we need someone to be accountable for whatever um, decisions and actions and, and policies we decide to put in place over the course of this hurricane that, that's descending on us. So
2: it was plague reactive. It wasn't something that was like in process or uh, it was something that you'd thought about, but that was a catalyst. I
1: think it's something that we thought about. I, I don't think there was a huge amount of urgency around it in the early because we had only launched the end of 2018. And at that point we were only bringing in, uh, we, we only had launched the in review service. So through Springer Nature, we hadn't launched yet the direct submission route and the direct submission route is where a lot of the, scary stuff
0: comes from. Mm. You've, you've done something very interesting on the on the uh, on the platform um, which is introducing badges now badges is not a new concept a lot of journals have introduced badges for open data open scripts etc pre-registration all that kind of stuff um, your the first badge that you have is 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 pretty standard this is a this period, this preprint passes muster, it's not nonsense and it's not dangerous. But you do offer two other badges. Um, the badges in themselves aren't terribly new. It's um, one of the badges is for, it's a methods reporting badge for transparency in methods. And the other one is a data reporting badge for demonstrating analytic rigor. But what is interesting is that this is actually done independently um, by other people, so the person who's submitting the preprint can pay a hundred bucks, and then when they pay a hundred bucks, someone else can independently go through and actually say this paper has analytical rigor. Um, they actually have a justification for their sample size. Uh, they actually did pre-register it. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. All this stuff. So, so, so many times we see manuscripts, and it's like data is open. You click on a thing, and it's not. Or it's you you, you. you get some like you get the, the the best one I've seen is data is open. Here's the CSV, and you open the CSV, and it's one cell. Contact the author to get the data. <laughs> nice. That that is wow. All, all um, yeah. All Tom Foley Fuller- all that Tom all Fuller- that is happening. So in this sort of way, th- there have been a few different proposals. I mean, you, you you've got the, the the red team concept where you pay other people money to. to to go through your manuscript and check it and sort of, the check, check that everything's all fine. But here, you've offered a way for people to have their manuscripts independently checked. Um, yes, it costs money, but people's time also costs money. And what you can do is you can actually submit this certificate which goes through, has a bunch of points going, these are the things, this this thing is not applicable because it's not an animal study, for instance, and that can be submitted to the journal. So the journal can actually say, hey, um, someone has independently gone through this and found X, Y, Z. Can you tell us a bit more about why you introduced this? So I, I, th- I think it's a very interesting approach, which journals should probably do as well.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of it is checking for things that a lot of journals don't. Necessarily bother with or require, Uh, and peer reviewers often don't, you know, like go through these things. And just to um, add a little bit of a small tweak to what you said, the data badge is, and both of them are reporting badges, and not we're not really looking at the rigor. Uh, we don't have like a statistician actually checking that the, the statistics that were used were the appropriate statistics. Yeah, got it. That, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's nuance, but, um, but we are checking for a long list of things. So for example, in a RCT randomization, blinding, you know, that there is a description of these things, uh, in the study, right. That it's reported. So it's still, mi- I would call it minimal standards. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, mdar i think it's like the oh god i am never remember materials data i can't remember exactly what it is but there's this new new framework for you know a laundry list of things that you know a study should should fundamentally have you know just from the get-go um that is the kind of thing we're checking for it's a it's a lot more heavy-handed than than the, the screening which really shouldn't be a badge it's not going to be a badge in the in the the uh, upcoming iteration of the the articles. We're we're about to launch a new article page that won't have that, won't display that as a badge because unfortunately people have also used that to kind of say, look, it's a, you know, this is a verified, you know, it's pre-screened. It's like, no, it's there, you know, it's screened. It's not, let's not read into that too much. Uh, so we don't want it. We don't want that to have anywhere near the same level of weight that the paid badges have. And so that will be removed. Um, But yeah, the, the goal there is to get it. It's, it's a bit of like an incremental publishing idea, which we're not the first to, to pitch this, but that you're getting a little bit closer to, um, being a piece of research that people can consider trustworthy, or at least you have the information there so that it is reprodu, you know, so that it's theoretically reproducible, uh, Falsifiable. If the data is not there, you know, in the in the instance that you point to, um, the data aren't there, then it's not falsifiable. So, um, so that's a problem. <laughs> it's especially a problem for a preprint um, because you know you've you're we've given you the platform here to tell everyone about your amazing new finding, uh, but then you don't give anybody the, the ability to actually check your work. Um, so that's problematic. I think almost on a different level than than not supplying your data to the journal, you know, with, along with the journal article.
0: It's super important because so, so many times you'll be reviewing a, a paper. Um, I, I do review a lot of meta-analyses and typically you would submit a PRISMA uh, PRISMA statement that you, or PRISMA guidelines. People are very good at saying, we did the PRISMA guidelines, um, <laughs> but they don't actually... They don't actually submit the guidelines because right. they seem to think that's just something that you just say. It's just a cool thing to say in papers. And when they do, they don't often actually conform to the thing they said they did. So yeah. some, the reviewers didn't look at it. The editors didn't look at it. Um, but I'm the nerd peer, peer reviewer that looks at it going, mate, you didn't, you didn't do this. So to actually have someone at the minimum to go through these reporting, there's different reporting stuff for clinical trials, meta analyses, and animal studies and actually check that you, you did the thing you said you did. Uh, I think that, it, that those incremental things will, will, will be, lead to, to improvements and it's, it's, it's great.
1: It's co- it could. I mean, obviously the hope is that we we do get to a point where journals can outsource that to us, you know, so that we can – we'll take care of that. We know this part is boring and tedious and uh, – but it has to be, you know, it's important. So and, – and like we've all kind of collectively agreed, the Centre for Open Science, like everybody agrees – this is a, these are important aspects of the study to include, and so can we just all get on the same page and, and, and require that as an, as, a, as a minimum? Um, and for preprints, it will h- help the stratification, right? So we will, for example, allow people to filter eventually on the badge status mm-hmm. of, of the yeah. preprint, so that you can start at a kind of a at a higher level. Obviously, it also incentivizes purchasing it, which is something that we need uh, in order to to. Uh, validate our business model and, and, you know, help us to commercialize this because we are a commercial preprint platform.
0: Sure. Talk to us about this ivermectin retraction that, um, that briefly came up before.
1: Sure. What do you want to know?
0: (laughs) What's the story? How did this all, how did this all come about?
1: So the story is that we Received this preprint in November, of 2020. So it was before vaccines. It was before uh, ivermectin was such a big talking point, um, especially an anti-vaccine talking point. I mean, I've noticed that kind of those two topics circulating in the same circles. Um, that wasn't a thing yet, but I I, I remember my early kind of. Uh, sniffs of ivermectin were in the same or had the same like taste as as hydroxychloroquine so i was certainly alert to that and aware that there could be but this could be a you know um we could be chasing a white rabbit with this drug um but i also had an understanding that it was less harmful and so i wasn't as concerned about you know posting uh posting the research and in, in the case that it you know like Ends up hurting somebody to take the drug. What What I noticed is that this was just one of I don't know how many. We probably have thirty or somewhere in the area of thirty to fifty ivermectin COVID nineteen related preprints on our platform. Some of which came through Springer Nature. Some of which uh, were were submitted directly. and and some of them deal with prophylaxis using the drug as a as a prophylactic against covid-19 and others um as a treatment and they were almost all originating from uh poor countries and this is kind of the the one common theme that i seem to notice between them um and some of them were just like observational studies but there were a few rcts as well um and then later meta-analyses that use those same RCTs. So the whole thing became a little bit incestuous and a little bit uh, quickly because uh, before we noticed it, uh, that there were people using that uh, that study and other RCTs that were either on our platform or on Med archive or other preprint platform um, in the meta-analysis, and they and they hadn't been published yet um so th- that's kind of the trajectory of what happened up to the point of whatever it was 3 weeks ago or 4 weeks ago when um when i received uh a message from um jack lawrence who's a everyone keeps calling him a medical student but i'm pretty sure he's not a medical student he's a master student a british master student um basically a giving me a lot of detail about what he found with the study, which is now detailed um, both by him. It's it's described in a Guardian article. Um, Nick Brown did a really nice, um, really nice detailed blog about it, um, going into a lot more depth about all the various issues with it. Uh, But before all that, I saw enough, um, both with respect to plagiarism, which I will say... I'm not super concerned. I think people have made, maybe you guys can argue me down on this, but I think people have made too much of the plagiarism aspect of this. I was It didn't r- super concern me. as enough of a reason to withdraw it. This person obviously lifted heavily from other people's narratives about ivermectin, but he didn't like plagiarize the results, right? Like he didn't steal people's results. Instead, it looks like he may have used some creative methods to, to come to his own. Um, and I was shown the evidence of that too. And so it was just really obvious that something went horribly wrong with this preprint and I needed to pull it, let people know, put an editorial note up. Um, I withdrew it so that, the, so that the PDF would actually have the withdrawn uh, um, watermark on it and it wouldn't get propagated any further. That was my my main concern um, that I wanted to get it, you know, make it obvious to everyone that, that something went sideways with this um and then uh yeah kind of all hell broke loose on twitter the next day um but nothing you know nothing bad. like james was saying i mean it did, i don't think much was ref- it, people reflected poorly on or this situation reflected poorly on us or necessarily on me it was stressful um to realize that this thing had been up for so long and that um had been used so extensively um It was cited 30 times. It was included in at least two meta-analyses, possibly more, that were, you know, yet served as the basis of evidence, you know, used at pretty high levels for the effectiveness and the efficacy of this drug. So uh, that was deeply concerning. (laughs) I mean, I just don't, I still can't fully understand how that happened, especially because, even in my very like poor understanding of risk of bias for randomized control trials, once I really took a good, uh, critical look at it, I could see all the problems, you know, it's obvious once they're pointed out to you, of course, but, um, it should have been obvious to anybody who, who was, who was using it to build a case for this drug. If they, if they were, um, you know, I don't understand why people didn't look at it more closely if they were going to try to build a case on it, especially given the size of the trial. And this trial apparently added, you know, a, a huge amount of heterogeneity to the, to the total, um, you know, sample. So shouldn't that have alerted someone to potential problem?
2: Well, anyway. yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's a huge divergence in responsibility between um, a preprint server putting up a preprint and someone who is going through it with the explicit purpose of delineating the bias present to put it in a ostensibly proper scientific article that itself is fully and properly peer-reviewed, going out into the normal scientific commons. If your if your immediate response to that is well why don't the people who post everything do something different about it I think you might have missed the fucking point. Um, it's it it's been I mean. One one of the I mean it's nice to hear you being rude about meta-analyses because um the the sort of backbone of this podcast is me being mentioning that once every twenty minutes since two thousand and sixteen and Dan grinning but also thinking a little bit about trying to reach down the phone and hit me. Um,
1: I remember your, it, your episode about it specifically,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think That's some like negativity three. was expressed. Yeah we have yeah, Potentially. so look, the 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 but when 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 it gets when it gets right w- right down to the absolute the absolute core of that there's there's a point where there very definitely is it's difficult to tell sometimes it's like a step function in biology sometimes it's very difficult to tell where the middle is but there's a point where there is a different environment of scrutiny for something that we say is proper and something that we say is prospective Now, a lot of the time, we don't know where things are on that continuum, but there's definitely a start and there's definitely an undifferentiated middle and there's definitely an end. And an honest to God meta-analysis in an allegedly proper journal with allegedly responsible authors doing a legitimate assessment for risk of bias is very definitely on the proper end. And if you're going to have a series of complaints about it, in general, you work backwards, from the people who were supposed to do their job, right? I mean, things things like this, because it's happened so much and I have so much sort of peripheral contact with it and I see it happening all the time, things things like this stopped scaring me too a little bit. I mean, obviously it was an enormous pain in your ass for a while and you sort of like this, He's like, oh, there's some night's sleep I'll never get back. But the thing that keeps me up at night is seeing stuff like this turning up in policy proposals and government documents and being quoted by the governor of a thing or they release something that is like, this is how we're going to handle it in this state. And at that point in time, you start to realise that if there's anyone who's going to be the expert, who's going to have to do the admittedly very difficult but not undoable calculus of risk versus reward in the immediate areas that affect public health. Those people should know how to read something and tell whether or not when your randomization was we hit it with a toffee hammer several times and then people ended up in groups because we thought it would be funny lol. And then there's like a string of fucking emojis or something. And if there's if there's a like a low risk of bias kind of attitude, or this is worth saying at a press conference kind of attitude. Jesus Christ, can we, can we please start the argument where it starts? Um,
1: and what, by the time I it gets to the is- peer
2: review of the
1: meta-analysis, <laughs> like the peer review of the meta-analysis, there has to be a limit to what we expect those reviewers to actually do, right? I mean, they're, looking, they're taking at face value that the studies on, that are included in the meta-analysis are okay. I mean, I don't know how you can do that when like half of them are preprints and haven't been officially scrutinized. So that, that already is a problem. But in in most cases, the studies that are included in the meta-analysis are published studies. So now you are borrowing trust upward to Mm. your, to your review. Um, because I mean, how far do they have to pull those? You're, it, it can't be the responsibility of the reviewer of a of an otherwise good meta analysis to have to pull back all, you know, peel back the the curtain on every single RCT that was included, right? I mean, it's too much. So it's just, it's just a house. Yeah, of
2: but I mean, in in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation like this, yeah, you're right all. Also, what, what what you just described is what sounds to me like how the mortgage market failed in the U.S. Mm.
1: Um. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's not um, unlike that
2: i mean at, at 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 the very least there's a, there's a, a a thing again we come back to the sort of role of social responsibility in this where there's competing concerns between you you know if you review this and you're not completely socially inept you don't like you've never turned the news on you just like you know you've you've got a block of wood and you've watched that in the evening <laughs> Uh, in between in between working your statistics out scratching it into the surface of the stump unless you're completely shut off from digital reality you know the consequences of something like this this is we we we're seeing an enormous change now there's plenty of normal science has been published in a vast constellation of fields and subfields in the last year and a half some people have thought Oh, well, I finally get a chance to finish all that stuff. i got backlogged. I can't collect any data. I might as well start clearing decks. And they've been putting out stuff like, you know, data was collected in 2016. I've seen a few papers (laughs) like that and that has no immediate social interest. And it's not going to be read. It's not going to be read by people who are treating this as a topic du jour and it feels really unfair to propose anything where something that is of immediate social interest gets more scrutiny or even really severe scrutiny. I think there's been a lot of resistance to that traditionally, but I do wonder how many options there are that are left when it yeah, comes to... Uh,
1: it's certain We certainly give those things more scrutiny. I mean, I, the way that I phrase this is that I... We don't need to pretend that we don't know that these are the things people are going to chase down on Twitter and on Parlor and God knows where else, right? Like mm. we know which topics they're looking for at this point. We know what they're going to seize on. We're not, we're now starting to see certain patterns emerge or we know exactly how they're going to twist or misinterpret something, um, and now, you know, unfortunately, we know that I, I don't, I can't even venture a guess to why this is happening with ivermectin in particular, um, given how it's this cheap drug that is most, you know, anti-parasitic drug that's mostly used in, I think, maybe exclusively used in the, these countries that don't have access to vaccines and all that. So I'm, I don't even want to, like, get into why why there would be this, potentially this cabal of uh ivermectin weirdos who are who are just trying to tout this drug with no i don't i don't actually think that that's true um but now we know that that's happening right like something's happening with this so we're aware of it and maybe and this is just in the spirit of not abdicating full responsibility um everyone else, like, I'll post it and you guys deal with the <laughs> blowback. Um, I, there are things we can do. Like we can, uh, if for those studies, we can check that the data is there and not left behind a 1234 password. Um, that was the password that was used on the data. Uh, the, yeah. the, the data that was ostensibly shared, it was available. Right. It's just you have to pay for the, the repository and you have to guess the password correctly, but it's shared. Uh, we could check that. It doesn't take long. Um, and we don't have to do it across the board. Like operationally, that would not be scalable. And it's not, it's not reasonable to expect that of a preprint platform. But I think it's reasonable for us to expect that of the people who want to post this stuff as preprints because now we see what happens, you know, what can happen downstream. Um, and so at least I would have felt better if the data had been available because maybe someone would have turned this up um, sooner, I-, I would hope they would have. Uh, so that's, that's, I think a minimum thing that we can do. It's something that I've already, you know, that I do have a, a small team for the people who are doing the screening. They're aware of what has happened here and have their eyes open to the possibility of receiving more like this, mm-hmm. any other kind of drugs uh, around COVID-19, especially um, we're going to be taking a different level of care going forward.
2: Mm. But also, let's let's put that in perspective. How many people are on the team doing this?
1: Three.
2: Right. How many preprints have you do you generally receive on a normative week?
1: Hmm. Um, we are at about fifteen hundred.
2: Cool. Per okay. Week. <laughs> right. And uh, that's a normative week. So, if say a really busy one happened, for instance, it could conceivably be many hundreds more than that. Um, that is a profound disparity between which. Mean, this is I'm 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 pleased and kind of a, lo- a little bit sort of low key impressed that there's sort of resources and thought given to that at all because I mean there clearly isn't at um, other people who should conceivably no better. Um, but look, I can, I can tell you from immediate experience that the interrogation of one, even if a paper is genuinely bad, it is, I would imagine for something reasonably simple, somewhere between one and three weeks collective full-time work, for people who, for people who knew what they were doing, who people who knew where to look and what box to open and like the questions to ask first, because you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the time you can stop. I mean, this is something that happened to us in the uh, back at, back in the one days. You know, you'd open the thing up, it didn't work. You open something else up, it didn't work. You look at something else, that, like table one didn't match the text on page three, and then it didn't match the the graph that was given in figure five. And at some point in time, you just go, well, "We can't trust this." Um, but it's like, "How wrong do you need me to make it done?" <laughs> Um, and that's, that's even with the advantages of experience and the fact that sometimes you get to stop halfway or a third of the way or whatever else. So the, the drinking from a fire hose aspect of it, I mean, there has to be a selectivity in general. So you made the very obvious decision. It seems that the selectivity should go towards the things that are of immediate public interest, which seems like the only logical solution.
1: Yeah, um, it means that I have to keep my finger on the pulses to what's in public interest. Um, which so is change- relate, a, qu-
2: relate a question to that. Do you get a lot of sleep?
1: <laughs> I haven't in the last <laughs> few weeks. It's been a rough few weeks. Uh, I'm actually surprised. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised this was the first one that like really blew up in the way that it did, um, given how much. I mean, we ate. Over eight thousand COVID nineteen preprints. Oof, wow! Um, okay. Oh, you know, we've screened all those and, and you know rejected many, uh, but that's how many are posted. And uh, you know we've had you know we've had some near misses and we've got, I have a lot that have editorial notes on them because I'm like, you know, I have to run interference on just shenanigans that go on online. Mm. Um, that that uh, I think James, I mentioned it to you in a thread that. That mask, that kid's mask preprint that was cited. It was like the only one of five papers that were cited by the uh, we're suffocating our kids with masks paper that's now been retracted. Um, Mm. This is a a paper that it's not even a study. It's a it's basically a a collection of data from (laughs) essentially from disgruntled anti-maskers about their kids being grumpy to wear masks, like being mm. grumpy about wearing masks, and complaining of headaches and just being irritable. Like so, their toddlers are irritable, and they uh. reported this. And like the thing, I so this is annoying, and it's not a study, and they don't actually, they're not even like drawing any major conclusions from this. They're just putting it out there, uh, and they're they don't have an anti-mask agenda, according to them, uh, but. What's, you know, I, I did end up posting this, um, this preprint and later on kind of regretted it because now I'm like, what? This, this doesn't really offer any kind of uh, benefit to society to have this preprint out there. It's just a load of information from from admitted anti-maskers. So they, this is kind of what I liked about it is that they kind of listed their sources of bias. They listed their limitations and not everyone bothered to look at that. But Mm. to their credit, they did say, yeah, we found these people like essentially on anti-mask groups on Facebook and then polled them. But we also offered the survey to anybody who wanted to to jump in. And so we have a little bit of a, you know, sampling bias.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just just,
1: just (laughs) a tad smidge. Um, So all I did, all I did with the editorial note, once this went completely viral, so to speak. Um, is pull all of the limitations that they'd already listed kind of up to the, to the top. And was Like, by the way, they did say this, you know, like, this is what you're looking at when you're looking at this paper. There's nothing actually wrong with this paper methodologically, and they're not claiming any, and they're not making any big claims. Uh, but like, what what is this offering to society? In, in retrospect, I'm like, I shouldn't have posted it. It just created headaches for us. But I'm, I'm trying to be like mindful of the fact that I'm also coming into this with, my own biases, you know, and my own, you know, and my own politics and my own, you know, uh, beliefs and whatever. And I try not to let that influence my decisions about what to post and what not to post. I'm really, I'm really conscious of that, and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want that leveled against me, that you know, uh, or against us, that we are a uh, political or you know, politically biased or anything like that. Um, but that's really hard <laughs> in this day and age. So,
0: Michelle, thanks, thanks for joining us. That was uh, that was great. It was uh, it was fantastic to learn about uh, what uh, what you've been doing at uh, at Research Square and all the um the the, the thought process th- thought processes behind all the stuff that you've been doing.
1: Well, thank you guys. I've been li- a listener of the show for at least a year now, and uh, I I take it very seriously, actually, despite its silliness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've learned a lot oh, from okay. your show, from you, Good, and from one of us. From you and from your guests. So, um, so it's actually a really big honor to uh,
2: to be on here.
0: It's been great. Oh,
2: well, how, how very civilized! Um, you, you, you're welcome. Let's w- let's let's create another global fuss, and then you can come back and do, do it again. <laughs> Done. I'm I'm on it.